Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloen. I grew up as a small child on California's coast, living in our family's homes in Malibu, back when it was literally a bohemian community of mostly houses that were just a bit better than shacks. I loved those beaches and the wildlife that lived both onshore and in the kelp beds I explored on a big yellow surfboard that I used more as transportation to explore than to surf. I've been returning to the coast ever since, mostly the wild Mendocino coastline, to rekindle my love of the sea and those who cling to life along its edge. Our guest this week, Rosanna Shaw, has traveled most of the length of California's coast and the San Francisco Bay as an environmental reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Shaw has reported extensively on coastal erosion and development issues on the coast in the wake of climate change and sea level rise. She has compiled this reporting into a new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. It's a detailed chronicling of how California's coastal areas that have literally defined the state's lifestyle are in peril both for coastal ecosystems and the communities that ultimately depend on them. She joins us now from her home in Southern California. Rosanna Shaw, welcome to Blue Dot. Hey, Dave. It's so nice to be here. It's great to have you on. I really enjoyed this book because the California coast is very special to me. I, I grew up on it. I, I like to visit it as often as I can. And I have noticed many of the things that I've you know read about in your book over the years that I've been on the coast. So uh, thanks for writing this. It's really important. What I'd like to find out first is uh, how did you become uh, an environmental reporter for, for the LA Times? Tell us the backstory there. Yeah. So, I mean, I started as a copy editor at the LA Times and became a breaking news reporter and kind of did, did all these different beats across the state that I joke, but I shouldn't joke, you know, all the reasons why we shouldn't have built California. I was covering El Nino, the drought, wildfires, debris flows and mudslides, all these kind of natural disasters that became my subspecialty. And then there was a position open a couple of years ago on the environment team to cover the coast. And so, so my environmental coverage now focuses specifically on issues that pertain to our coast and ocean, you know, which is amazing. I get to write about the beach all the time and our relationship to the beach, you know, but then you realize, oh, wait, we are on the edge of two huge extremes connected by an ever shifting line in the sand. You know, every high and low tide is different. And the California coast is this super dynamic place where land meets water and not just any body of water, we're talking about the Pacific Ocean, the largest ocean on the entire planet. So it's kind of this confluence of all these different environmental extremes. And then there's the science and the policy and environmental writing in general is just this kind of crash course on all these different sectors of society. It's not just a science beat. It's not just a policy beat. It's not just an animal's beat. It's also community and land use reporting. So I feel like this is a long way of me answering that everything that I covered up until this point really helped shape kind of the type of environmental writer that I am today. And and then what specifically got you, what was the impetus to, to make you decide, I want to write a book about the issues going on along the California coast, especially because of climate change and sea level rise and coastal erosion, and all of those things. And like you said, there's so much to unpack in this book because you do such a ex wonderful, extensive reporting from various communities all over the state. Um, what was it that made you decide, I want to tackle this as a book project? Yeah, so 
you know, when I first started covering the coast, I would go to all these different cities and towns, you know, just meeting people and listening to the issues being discussed in local community meetings. And, you know, sea level rise was this recurring issue that just loomed over everything. But everywhere I went, everyone I talked to, like, everyone seems stuck. And I remember running back to my editor every time, you know, wanting to write like, oh my God, there was a city council meeting that lasted eight hours and everyone was talking about all these things. And, you know, my reporter instinct was like, there is conflict here. There is color here. There is like really hard questions here that we want to answer. This is definitely page one story. You know, my, but my editor said, you know, he told me to hit pause, to think about, you know, whether we would be writing basically the same story 50 different times each with a slightly different set of voices, with a different, slightly sense of place, but ultimately answering or trying to answer the same question and this recurring theme. So instead of writing 50 different articles, I kept listening and learning and, you know, eventually reached the realization that, you know, there is a bigger story here. And the, the tricky thing with telling a story about the California coast um, is that there's no one-size-fits-all solution to every part of the coast. And no one place can tell the story of the entire coast because the geography is so different depending on where you are. You know, think about the cliffs along the Sonoma Coast and the Mendocino Coast and then, you know, Humboldt Bay versus something like the massive low-lying river plains that so much of Los Angeles and Orange County are built on. And, you know, another thing I say often is that the California coast itself is huge. It's more than 1,200 miles long from the Oregon border all the way to Mexico. You know, imagine going from Boston all the way to Georgia. And that's not counting the hundreds of miles of inner bay shoreline along San Francisco Bay. There are so many different communities along the coast, you know, each with their own unique stories and their own unique set of issues. So, you know, it's important to give space for the individual needs of each community while also keeping in mind how we all fit in as part of this bigger whole. So I started by writing this big article in 2019 for the LA Times that kind of started piecing together some of this story, you know, the bigger story told through individual places that all add up to this bigger kind of broader discussion on what it means to live at the very edge of like land and sea, and what it means to have this massive body of ocean be our next door neighbor and what it means to live in better relationship with it. And from there, you know, there was just so much more I wanted to say. And a book felt like the natural extension of this. And I have been able to go deeper and deeper and deeper on this in ways that I had not expected. And yeah, like Dave, you, you said you grew up along the coast, but I'm, I'm imagining kind of just thinking about all these different places that you've lived in California. It, it is different depending on where you are, right? And it's hard to kind of tell this cohesive story of one coastline. Yeah, because you know, there's so many parts of California. You know, when I think of of California's coastline, there are not not one image, but images that I have because I know basically all of it because uh, I've spent so much time there, and, there, and that's the beauty of it. There's so many different places. the 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 beaches of Southern California are so different than the coastal areas in Mendocino uh, County, which is, I think, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen on the planet. Um, so, like you said, it's just it's it's very iconic, but at the same time. It's it's like a kaleidoscope of places. Yeah, I love that. And I think this is reminding me too, like at the very, very, very beginning of the book writing process, you know, I'd published this big article in the LA Times on sea level rise in California. I had a lot of interest from folks on like, how would you turn this into the book? 
please turn this into a book. Let's, let's talk. And so there was a lot of brainstorm conversations with different editors and, you know, there was a lot of kind of the sentiment that to write a book about sea level rise, like let's do, let's do it big. Let's have California be one chapter of this big book on sea level rise, where you also, where I also write about Superstorm Sandy and Miami and Norfolk, like you said, and maybe we can even take an international, go to Indonesia because Jakarta is moving, you know, it's like its entire capital. And I had this like thought like, okay, what would a national book on sea level rise look like? What would an international global kind of in scope book on sea level rise look like? And then kind of narrowing that focus back to, can I just write a book about California and sea level rise and have that in itself be a diverse enough book with enough variety and scope that that story of California and its coastline in itself could enter the national conversation on climate change and climate change adaptation? And the answer is yes. Like you just said, California is so varied. It, it feels like a country in itself. And there's so much variety and texture and nuance to explore. And I'm just really excited to share it with everyone. I also like the title because it works on kind of two different levels, California against the sea. Um, it, you know, the against mm. is like the kind of the pitched battle that some people have. If you try to, if you try to live in a house right on the coastline, uh, you're going to be dealing with erosion and your house, your house could crumble into the sea. You know, that happens quite often and it's, it's accounted for, uh, accounted in your book, but it's also, you know, we, we live against the ocean, you know, as uh, against as next to. So I like the title. It kind of works in those two different ways. I'm so glad you picked up on that too. And, you know, being in the environmental writing space, the climate change writing space, you'll, you'll never be able to unsee this. Now there are so many metaphors, war metaphors, when you talk about climate change, like when you read news articles and stories and coverage of climate change, the way we just think about climate change in nature, there are all these battle metaphors, or we're going to battle against the ocean, we're at war with nature, they're um, kind of also, you know, the terms manage retreat, like all of that have the subtext of like, we are kind of fighting against nature. And the title is actually inspired by one of my favorite John McPhee essays, Los Angeles Against the Mountains, which is one of ah, essay yes. within the control of nature. And there was just something really poetic about that. And, you know, McPhee is the OG and someone who has inspired me deeply in terms of nature writing. And yeah, I think, you know, to go on a brief tangent, I mean, this idea of nature writing, I, I was reflecting on this a lot too through the book writing process. You know, the genre has, really expanded, especially with climate change now so front of mind. And we're not just writing about either nature as these pristine sanctuaries that are separate from our own built environments. And we're also not necessarily just writing about our war with nature. And, you know, McPhee was really broke the ground on just kind of thinking about all these nuances on how we engage with land and the natural forces of our planet. You know, and one theme that I really lean into with this book is something that is actually core to many indigenous cultures, you know, this notion that people are not separate from nature, we are part of nature. So, you know, environmentalism, saving nature, it's not about saving nature from people, it's about saving nature in a way that we live in better relationship with the natural world. So the title California Against the Sea is kind of a play on a lot of these themes. I think it's how we enter the issue, but not necessarily how end on the issue by the time you reach the end of the journey of this book. I definitely sensed a, uh, 
Church of McPhee in in your writing when I was reading. I thought of John McPhee a few times, so I definitely could see the influence when I was reading this book. Let's talk about some places that you go, because that's what I think makes this book really fascinating, is to, to go into these places and dive into the communities and find out all of the issues there. It had to take extensive time on your, your part as a reporter to find, dig these stories out and these people. So let's start where you start your, your, your book out, a place called Imperial Beach. Tell us a bit about that place. Yeah. And, you know, Imperial Beach is at the very southern edge of the California coast. It's on the border with Mexico. It's uh, more of a working class town and not necessarily kind of your go-to image of what you think a beach town in California might look like. You know, surfing is huge in Imperial Beach, but the beach is actually closed more than 300 days of the year, actually, as of now, because of the sewage problem from, you know, the other side of the border, the, the sewage will flow in from the river and go straight into the ocean, and then they have to shut down the beach. So there's this, like, kind of already this tenor of this town feels different, and I wanted to start somewhere that, immediately will help convey to the reader. We're not just leaning into tropes of what we think the California coast is about. And Imperial Beach too, it's it's this tiny little town south of San Diego and, you know, very close-knit community. You know, it's surrounded by the ocean on one side, the Tuana River on another side, and then San Di- and the bay, you know, on the, on the third side. So it's surrounded by water on three sides. And they had a very environmentally minded mayor for a long time. And a town and a city manager that really tried to think ahead. You know, this is a town that will face a future with a lot more water. So what does that mean? And so they tried to start this conversation. They've teamed up with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography next door on kind of flood forecasting. And so they're trying to have this active ongoing conversation of what it means to live in better relationship with nature, while also kind of looking at sea level rise as an opportunity to somehow undo some of these inequities and just problems that have really haunted this part of the coast, you know, more so than other parts of the coast. So that just felt like a really cool way to enter this book. And, you know, we start in Imperial Beach, we go to all these other places, and then eventually we do come back to Imperial Beach later in the book. Yeah, there was a study that the wave height in California has measurably increased in the last century, since like the 1950s. And based on seismic data. And it, you know, just shows you that the surf is getting bigger. And, you know, that may be yay for some surfers, but it's really hard on the coastline and, and for people who are trying to live next to it. Yeah. And a term I hear a lot, you know, within the sea level rise science world is slow moving disaster. You know, unlike wildfires or other more dramatic climate change related disasters, sea level rise is more slow moving. You can't stand on the beach for one afternoon and really feel the immense scope of sea level rise, right? But we we also know that the sea is expanding from all the excess heat that the ocean is absorbing, you know, and then add on top of the rising water a storm or El Nino or big wave event. And the waves are indeed getting bigger, like that study that you just cited you know, things can easily start to compound, like we saw with the back-to-back storms in January along so much of the coast. And the other thing about the Imperial Beach section, I'm remembering now, what really struck me too with the script scientists that teamed up with the folks in Imperial Beach is this idea of frequency. The one scientist told me, you know, so many people still think of sea level rise as this one 
thing that happens at one point in time. It's not like a town just goes underwater. It's not like the road one day just goes underwater and it's done and it's a one-time disaster. You know, at what point does, you know, if a place is flooding 10 times a year, you know, 25% of the year, if every high tide it's going underwater, does it mean that this place is underwater? Because I think that right now we're kind of looking out to like, oh, this place isn't going to be underwater until 2080 if we are just moving the line inland on these all these different flood models. But, you know, at what point does does the flooding actually become such an impact that we do have to start moving? We do have to start adapting in different ways. And so I think this idea of frequency and then also compounding effects, you know, what does it mean to have the sea rise one foot, which might not feel that bad, but then add another foot from El Nino and then add three more feet from a big wave, things add up really quickly. So those are all kind of these nuanced conversations on sea level rise that I feel like is super fascinating to explore. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with L.A. Times environmental reporter Rosanna Shaw as we talk about her new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with L.A. Times journalist Rosanna Shaw as we talk about coastal erosion and development issues in California. Shaw is the author of a new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. Well, you mentioned a term that, that we've heard uh, a lot in the last few years, managed retreat. And in your book, you've got a few different places where, you know, that's being addressed in different ways. Um, uh, can you talk about that a little bit, maybe in terms of places like Pacifica um, and, and maybe contrast that with someplace else? Yeah. And managed retreat, you know, is another one of those war-like metaphors. And if there's been a lot I talk to about what does it mean to rebrand that term because that just it does feel very un-American to retreat from something but you know what does it mean to be more intentional about you know planned relocation or community-based re-envisioning and so those are kind of some of the terms that are emerging now in the managed retreat discussion but you know essentially you know as I kept listening and learning and hearing kind of what all the these different communities up and down the coast were debating, I, I ultimately reached the realization that when com- I ultimately reached the realization that when confronting sea level rise, we actually only have so many choices. You know, build a seawall, add sand to you know the coastline in perpetuity, elevate the building or road three, four, five, ten feet, you know, so that's not in the way of the ocean, or move away from the ocean. And so this move away from the ocean is the managed retreat conversation. And that is not gonna apply to everywhere. I don't think anyone is talking about moving San Francisco somewhere else. And I think this question of where do you go if you move is a really fraught question that has no kind of clean answer. And so that is also compounding the controversy around managed retreat. But in you know places like Pacifica, in a lot of communities that were built on former wetlands or just in unstable places or on crumbling cliffs, I mean, at what point does holding your ground and not retreating become an issue of safety? 
and an issue of just, you know, what are we sacrificing in order to pay as much as we need to pay to stand our ground on these places that are inherently unstable and the ocean is trying to move in. And so, you know, managed retreat is currently a very fraught debate. I think there are a lot of philosophical questions we haven't answered as a society that needs to be answered. And that's some the philosophical aspects of it. The book also explores. And then, you know, from a technical standpoint, every engineer and consultant and, you know, economist type consultant I've talked to, they're like, yeah, if you do it purely on a cost benefit analysis, purely on a numbers basis, purely on a, what is the most cost efficient way of doing this? Like manage retreat pencils out almost all the time, like manage retreat pencils out almost always as the most efficient way to do things. But, you know, there's all these other social, cultural, philosophical things that we don't account for in a very strict black and white numbers game. You know, is it fair for the people that are being proposed to like move away from the coast? Is it perpetuating systems that we don't want to perpetuate? Is it um, reinforcing something? Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, there are all these other kind of broader questions on managed retreat that are social and cultural in nature that I think an engineer alone and economist alone cannot solve. So it's really interesting. And I could ramble about managed retreat for Let's. You mentioned seawalls, and uh, you know they are one one way to defend to use another militaristic type term your property against the sea. Tell us a bit about what you discovered in Laguna Beach. Yeah, and so seawalls can be broken down to in a couple of categories. I'm sure everyone's kind of seen the piles of rocks that kind of line a coastline. That those are called revetments, and they're a form of um, a seawall. There's the concrete walls. You can also reinforce a cliff with concrete. So I kind of, let's just for the purposes of this conversation, batch seawalls into this one broad category of armoring the coast with a heart, like drawing a firm, hard line in the sand against the ocean. And so the biggest consequence with seawalls is that once you draw this hard line in the sand, as the ocean is moving in, it will kind of continue to drown out the sand in front of this hard line in the sand. So basically in the words of an environmentalist I spoke to from Surfrider Foundation, seawalls kill beaches. That was a very kind of clean and powerful way for me to understand the true cost of building a seawall. And so the next step to this question is, okay, so when is a seawall appropriate? When is a seawall something that we should, you know, discuss as a community is when a seawall is defending, for example, a private home or Pacific the Coast Highway, or, you know, the Embarcadero along the San Francisco Bay shoreline is essentially a gigantic seawall, and that is maintaining the entire the entire financial district of San Francisco. So there are all these different forms of seawalls, the kind of what is it protecting is part of the equation. And then in Laguna Beach, you know, there is the book drills into kind of this one specific seawall case that opened kind of all these other broader questions, but it was a seawall that was protecting someone's second home along a beach that was already losing a lot of sand. And this question of, is it okay to build a seawall to protect one property at the expense of a beach that serves everyone was at the core of that debate. And, you know, it, yeah, and the Coastal Commission, which is the statewide regulatory agency that technically has a say in whether or not a seawall can be built, whether a seawall needs to be taken down, or whether or not we're allowed to build more seawalls and kind of make these philosophical and regulatory decisions, 
all of kind of these unanswered questions that sea level rise is now sharpening into focus kind of became a flashpoint on this one seawall in Laguna Beach. And the wall is still standing as of our conversation right now. And it's going through court, a lot of appeals, a lot of counter appeals. It's switched owners at this point. Um, yeah, it's it's one of these things where like we're trying and testing all of these environmental consequences and decisions and concepts in legal courts and through our existing regulatory systems. And you can't help but wonder, like, how much more time do we have to do this? So it, the, the Laguna Beach seawall is a fascinating flashpoint of so many of these conflicts that are coming into that are coming to head. And yeah, like the, it's, I don't want to give too much away, but it, it was very fascinating for me to dive deep into this one seawall in Laguna. It's definitely a case in point. And I think I read uh, somewhere in there that it, like, it, it's like 35% of Southern California is like seawalled. Is that, is that right? Yeah. The uh, Coastal Commission, along with a team of researchers, you know, the people have been piecing together. There's like no gigantic master inventory of seawalls. But if you think about all the hard infrastructure along the coast, like more than 35% of the Southern California coastline is armored. And Southern, like Orange County has a lot of armoring. Think Malibu Coast, where you grew up, like all of PCH is now protected increasingly by, you know, either permanent seawalls or emergency seawalls. This, yeah, this, this question of armoring the coastline and, you know, armoring each of our own slices of paradise is going to continue to be a very contentious conversation going forward. But also, like, I'm hoping we will get to a point where, as a community, we'll start talking about the philosophical um, pros and cons, too, of what it means to continue to wall off the ocean in this way. And where are we doing it? And how are we doing it? And is it truly fair? And like you said, when you when you do that, you're basically disrupting the natural deposition of sand and transport so you're it's really does destroy those beaches which is why people want to live there in the first place which is it's, it's one of those things that makes me scratch my head about how we we tend to live against the sea instead of with it uh as it were okay let's talk about um some some kind of cool success stories uh because i was i always like it when and this is something that i've come around to in the last couple of decades of my life, is when I look at the way the indigenous people of California lived here for thousands of years with nature as a part of it, and it is part of their lives, it's, it's entwined with them. They, they have this great wisdom that we can still tap into because there are still many indigenous tribal members throughout the coastal communities who can still tap into that. Um, so I always think about what can we do to work, have nature and us work together in partnership. And there's some really interesting stories in your book. One of the ones that you know touched me because my sister lives there, I grew up there, is uh, is a beach and, and a, a point doom in Southern California, mm -hmm. which is a very iconic place. If you've ever seen the movie um, Planet of the Apes, it's where mm -hmm. you know the Statue of Liberty was. And you know, so I, I see so many commercials and things you know filmed there that I go, oh, I know where that is, you know, when I'm watching <laughs> on TV. So talk about some of the cool stuff happening there at Point Doom. Yeah, so there's all these talks of seawalls and coastal armoring. And then Another concept that has emerged in the last few years that really gives me hope is this idea of living shorelines. And so let's look at what nature already had been doing 
for millennia in terms of this natural give and take between land and ocean. And so one of the really amazing things that I opened my eyes as I was going deeper and deeper in this book is just learning about wetlands and beach dunes and all these in-between spaces that have been erased and paved over between land and sea. And so Point Doom actually once had these incredible dunes that this, these these systems that were thriving with like critters and plovers and bugs and all kinds of really beautiful dune plants that, you know, for much of Southern California, when I ask someone now, what does a beach look like to you? They think of Santa Monica, which are these widened, manicured, flattened beaches and nothing like what the natural coast actually looked like. And so there's this, there was this team that I kind of tagged along with, led by the Bay Foundation at Point Doom, where they were, they, they, they posed this question, you know, if we just created space for these dune plants to grow back, can dunes actually regrow? Can we bring some parts of the coast where there is still space left, not paved over by parking lots or entire neighborhoods? Like, can we grow these dunes back and can they serve as a natural defense against the sea? And the answer so far is yes. They kind of roped off this one section of the beach. They planted a bunch of native plants, you know, beach evening primrose, uh, you know, coastal sage, like all these little plants that help kind of accrete and hold on to sand as the wind blows the sand in. And they just basically slowly build these dunes up little by little every single season. You don't need to water them. It's all natural. And there are now all these bumps in the sand that will, you know, help store sand during the winter and the summer and really just act as this natural buffer against higher waves and higher tides. And, you know, we can't do this everywhere along the coast, but the fact that this conversation is happening and there are more and more people thinking, okay, where along the coast do we still have space to do this is really, really cool. And on top of that, it just, it is this reminder that the beach itself used to be a wild place. Yeah. Like, you know, there, the, like the, the red sand verbena, uh, those natural plants that used to be there. And then when you start to do that, that dune restoration, and then you start to see the indicator species telling you this is a healthy place. Like uh, you mentioned a Western snowy plover. Um, you know, it's like when you see those birds there, it's like, ah, this is working. Yeah. And I mean, I don't see birds that often on the most populated beaches in Southern California. Actually, every time I go up north is when I'm reminded of how the beach itself is this beautiful wild place that had so much life, plant life and wildlife, you know, on the shore itself. And they are all part of this greater system that also protects us from the ocean as the tide moves in. So I think the fact that we are now tapping into nature's knowledge, the native knowledge that has been here this entire time is really hopeful. And so, you know, one of the things about the book too, is that I didn't want this book to be all doom and gloom. We do have answers. There are these snippets of hope that we can hang on to and latch on to and really just go forward with if only we are choosing to listen and to look and to really explore all these different ways of seeing the shore. And again, like you said, working with the shore rather than against it. Well, and also we, we have a very unique uh, situation in California, and you've mentioned it a little bit, uh, which is the California Coastal Commission. And I remember back when I was nine years old, the terrible oil spill off the Santa Barbara coast. 
And and then uh, after a lot of people worked very hard, we got the California Coastal Act, which is you know such an important piece of legislation for California and the Coastal Commission. And uh, I, I just would like to get your take on you know how you think things are in California because of having that now compared to if we didn't. Yeah, the thing I say at every uh, dinner party, you know, so to speak, is like think about Miami's coast line with all its high rises like think about you know I, I grew up in Massachusetts kind of the private beaches of New England in California because of the Coastal Act of 1976 like there is such a strong set of laws that have made the philosophical stand that the coast itself can is this broader public good that cannot be owned by anyone there is no such thing as a private beach in California and so therefore the coast belongs to everyone and we have made this conscious decision it was you know the coastal act was backed by a voter proposition you know the public chose to make the coast public and for all people and there are height limits and you know i think there's a lot of interesting conversations now about kind of the housing crisis in california and also kind of where we haven't chosen to build along the coastline because i think one of and you know the coastal act too when it got passed in the 70s got torn apart by a lot of kind of developer-backed legislators, real estate-backed legislators. And so one of the unintended consequences of the Coastal Act was that after it was passed, its authority to also require affordable housing along the coast um, got stripped a couple of years after the law was passed. So the fact that we haven't been allowed to build on the coast in these intentional, thoughtful ways that preserved nature and also maintain equity and affordable housing has now created the system where what was built before the Coastal Act, the properties that got grandfathered in, now are some of the most, you know, prized, high value real estate, not just in California, but in the country. And so we've created this demand with no new supply along the coastline. So it's really interesting to see kind of the the pros of the Coastal Act, which is we have Big Sur, we have these, we have Malibu, you can drive along Malibu and actually see the beach. There was a point in the 70s when that could have been not possible. And, you know, it where there are no high rises, like in Miami, where, again, like the coast is not an overdeveloped place. It is a beautiful, like, public treasure and the place where everyone can go to enjoy nature, to be by the ocean, and to really connect with what it means to be truly Californian. I think, you know, the beach is so intrinsically part of our identity in the state. I think it also has prevented even more problems for us to deal with today with sea level rise. If we had continued to build the shoreline in a less mindful way, I think the sea level rise question and manage retreat would be an even bigger problem now. We would have even more things to discuss and figure out whether or not we need to build a seawall to protect or, you know, whether or not this is the thing that we're going to move away from the ocean because the ocean is now right here. And I, I think the Coastal Act also has carved this really powerful framework for us going forward. But I think we have to see it through the lens of all the things that got stripped from the Coastal Act when it first got passed, you know, learn from what hasn't worked and what has worked. And again, you know, we need to fully understand history in order to think about how we move forward in a way that doesn't perpetuate the mistakes we've already made in the past. 
If you're just joining us, our guest is Los Angeles Times reporter Rosanna Shaw, and we are exploring the California coast, the prime focus of her new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our visit with LA Times environmental journalist Rosanna Shaw as we talk about her new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. I was really interested in the place that I went as a child because to visit my uh, my brother-in-law who was stationed at Fort Ord in Seaside. Mm. And uh, tell us a bit about what you've discovered is going on there, because the Army base, of course, is gone now, and the, the university is there. Um, but that's a really interesting community that you've profiled and, and has some interesting lessons uh, for us all to learn. Yeah, we talk about war metaphors, right? Fort Ord actually retreated from the ocean, <laughs> consciously, exactly. during Brack in the 90s. So it was an Army base that mostly for training and stationing for the Pacific, you know, theater during, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s. But yeah, like the ocean at some point got a little too close for comfort and the cliff kept eroding. And so at one point in the 90s, the army said it was time to relocate. And so they moved, they retreated from the coastline. And so Fort Ord since the 90s has been in the process of, um, being cleaned up. There are parts of the inland sections of Fort Ord that's still a super fun site. The, along the coast, it was like four miles of coastline. There, the like you know, the state agencies like state parks spent years sifting through the sand to clean out all the like lead bullets and the art- artillery because they use the dunes and the coast for shooting training because the terrain was perfect for training. And you know, they're turning it into campsites. It's beautiful if you go out there. And again, like restoring the shoreline back to what it was more more to what it was like before and really bringing more people to a part of the coastline that you know could have been further developed but instead we are rethinking and resetting the way we are relating to all these different kind of natural processes along the shoreline. And there's this town right next to Fort Ord, Marina. You know, Seaside's also another community, but the book dives into Marina. Very much, you know, an army town turned university town. And also kind of one of these towns that kind of get glossed over when you think about the communities along Monterey Bay. We often think about Carmel and Monterey and all of the beautiful little hamlets along the peninsula. But Marina, you know, just north of the Monterey Peninsula is also this pretty, you know, spunky working class town that had the choice in the 90s when Fort Ord left and, you know, a lot of jobs left. Like they had this choice to further develop their town, to become a Laguna Beach if they wanted to, to compete with all these like, other towns that had become tourist destinations. But instead, the city council at the time mindfully thought about ways to grow the community further inland, but to maintain the dunes. The dunes in Marina are beautiful. You should definitely go. If you haven't already, it's 
yeah, like the the dunes, the natural systems, there's not even a pier in Marina, even though the name is Marina, there is no Marina. And they made this conscious decision on like where to develop and where not to develop. And so come 2023, with all this talk about sea level rise, they have a lot of space to work with. They have a lot more options in terms of how to respond to rising sea levels. And I think some of what we can learn from Marina are the decisions that they made in the 90s, but also the decisions that they're continuing to make today. So that was also another, this town provided another glimmer of hope for me in terms of kind of this, this can work, look at this community. It was really wonderful to be able to dedicate an entire chapter to what Marina is doing in terms of sea level rise adaptation. Yeah, that was definitely one of the feel-good chapters. I, I enjoyed it very much. Um, let's talk about a place that's really been through some hard times, and uh, but yet is at the forefront of what could be something good, uh, depending on what happens there. And that's Alviso in in the South Bay part of the, of the Bay Area. Um, anybody that's ever flown out of uh, the San Francisco airport, you, you mm-hmm. fly over those those huge those huge salt flats that where they used to harvest the salt from. And I can remember, you know, the weird colors and I'd look down there and what is that down there? Um, Tell us a bit about that place because it really has a fascinating story. Yeah. And those salt flats along the South, the South Bay of San Francisco used to be wetlands. And again, Alviso is another great example of it's been years in the making, getting all the details right. It is the first project of its kind. And it, and many people have told me it cannot be the last project of its kind. So I think they were also, there was a lot of pressure to set a precedent with this project. But, you know, what does it mean to turn some of these old salt ponds that have been decommissioned back into wetlands? And again, wetlands like dunes serve as a living shoreline, a natural buffer against rising water and land land. And Alviso is this community that, you know, for so long was an afterthought in Silicon Valley. There are so many people there who have been there since Alviso became Alviso more than 100 years ago. People down in like core Alviso still go into the post office to get their mail. And to preserve that community too, I think is a really beautiful story of community resilience. And, you know, the story that really emerged for me in Alviso is like, what does it mean to protect both a community and, you know, revive, what does it mean to revive both a community and a missing ecosystem? Can we do both? And, you know, it isn't a binary, like, are we going to armor the coast or are we not going to armor the coast? And I think with the conversation of living shorelines, like, can we do both is not something we can do everywhere, but in places like Alviso, like, can we build a wetland and also engineer the landscape in a way that accommodates nature, but also continues to support and accommodate a community that really also deserves a second chance. One of my favorite parts of the California coast is a little area um, north of Fort Bragg called Westport. And there's a place there called Westport Union Landing State Beach. And I just know from my own experience over many years of visiting it, I can see, you know, you can, you can go there now. There was a little road that goes through the campground, you know, where the campsites were. And that road has been eroding into the sea, you know, just gradually over decades and to where now it's very dangerous. And uh, it's, so it's like, to me, you know, going to that place, I can see for myself, you know, this is how this has changed over time. 
Whereas, you know, somebody visiting it for the first time might, you know, kind of wonder, well, when did all this start? Um, so I, I think about the North Coast a lot. And you end your book in a really a neat way, in a very, a really cool place. Um, I'd like you to talk a bit about the Richardson's Ranch story. Yeah. It, so this is along the Sonoma Coast and, you know, a lot of historic ranches, the topography is very much like hills and cliffs and prairies going into the ocean. Highway one, the coastal highway kind of snakes along this entire coast. And there was this beautiful story that emerged a, a while ago. I would say it started almost more than 10 years ago. This idea that, so the Richardson family has has had this ranch for generations. And the current generation of the Richardsons, they were finally ready to retire the ranch. And they could have sold the land to any number of folks. And what they wanted to do was to sell it back to the Kashaya people. And they've had the the Richardson siblings had this beautiful relationship with the Kashaya. Growing up, they went to the same school as the Kashaya. And so they really got together and figured out a way to, because I think the market value for the land at that point was $7 million and figured out how to do this land transfer in a way that really set in motion a different future for this land and this coast. And it took, you know, so many organizations, the Trust for Public Land kind of stepped in and helped with the actual land transaction. Because again, ultimately, we still work within a Western property system. So Real estate, real estate transactions, super complicated, but they made it work. The Kashaya now hold the deed to this ranch. They have agreed to let um, the Richardsons live on the ranch for the rest of their lives. And they are now in the process of turning this ranch um, into part of it. It's going, there's going to be a coastal trail for the public. It's going to be, you know, this really, it's the first time that the Kashaya themselves have had access to the coast in such a meaningful way they're bringing in you know their children and their grandchildren back to the coast to kind of revive and really experience the coast and to continue the knowledge that had been shared orally but not um, experienced physically for generations and there's this beautiful thing about just what it means to bring all these people back to the coast including you know the public and to share this coast again and it's, it's it's funny, like, you know, the book does get really philosophical and I wasn't sure how to end the book for years. Like, you know, I, there is no real ending to a story about sea level rise in California. So much of, you know, what's going to happen depends on the decisions that we make today. And yeah, it's, it's always difficult to figure out, you know, how to end a story like this because it's so complex and so many different um, parts to this tapestry of that you've woven together of the California coast. So tell me a bit about, you know, how you approach the ending of this book. Yeah, and there there isn't a clean ending to sea level rise in California and what that means for us. Like that, and I really struggled with how do I end this? And and you know, I talk to when I when I talk to scientists, they the thing I hear the most from them is like, we know we have a pretty good idea from just the science perspective, what's going to happen with sea level rise in the next couple of decades? What's unclear is how people are going to choose to act going forward. So we still have an ending to write for all of us. And so for me, like, how do you end this book? And it wasn't 
necessarily intentional when I first started outlining and writing the book, but, you know, it felt really cool and really meaningful for me as the book came together. So, so the book, you know, first it, it opens with the Chumash. It gives the Chumash the first word. And I knew for a long time that that's how I wanted to start the book. But as I reached the ending, you know, the ending that fell into place gives the Kashaya people the final word. And when that clicked, there was just something so beautiful and realizing that my own journey of going deeper and deeper and deeper with the book and learning and understanding and thinking about the California coast ultimately led me here, you know, on the Sonoma coast with the Kashaya people and everyone else who also belongs in the coast. It just felt so right. Yeah, it was, it's a, it's a beautiful way to end the book and we'll let the, let the listeners go read the book and find out for themselves how it ends. But I, it's definitely very moving and, and well done. Um, Let's go back to the beginning of your book, though. You start the book out with the wonderful poem by Lucille Clifton, uh, Blessing the Boats. May the tide that is entering even now, the lip of our understanding, carry you out beyond the face of fear. May you kiss the wind, then turn from it, certain that it will love your back. May you open your eyes to water, water waving forever. And may you, in your innocence, sail through this to that. Lucille Clifton, Blessing the Boats. Tell us about why you chose that to, as you're, to lead the, the story off. Ooh, thank you for asking about that. This poem holds you know, a very special place in my heart, and everyone has their own interpretations for a poem. I, I, I think, and I don't want to overstep in this interpretation, but I get the sense of this poem by Lucille Clifton. It's a poem to me that feels like the message is do not be afraid of change, you know, sail into the horizon, knowing that the wind will love you back. And, you know, may you open your eyes to water. And, you know, this idea of not being afraid of what's beyond applies to climate change as well. And sea level rise is, you know, forcing us to reckon with change, to reckon with all these things that don't feel as familiar as the way we have come to know the California coast. But, and then in a literal sense, may we open our eyes to water. That is not a command, that is a call to action. And there was just something really powerful about this poem and applying it to kind of our fear of climate change, our fear of change in response to climate change, that just felt like the right sentiment to open the book with. And I'm so glad that um, the poem resonated with you as well. Yes, well, and that's a that's a great way to end this. Uh, Rosanna Shaw, uh, author of California Against the Sea: Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. It's great talking to you, and, and thanks for writing this incredible book. Yeah, thank you for you know just reflecting on the future of the coast with me. It it, it was an honor. Thanks again to our guest, Los Angeles Times environmental journalist Rosanna Shaw. Her new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline, is available at most major booksellers, or you can order it from your local community bookstore. I highly recommend it for anyone who loves visiting our iconic and precious coastal regions here in the Golden State. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. 
And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.